And we can turn to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to start it. As uh, I enter with fear and trepidation into preaching through the longest book I've ever preached through in, in my ministry and the first time I've ever preached through the book of Hebrews, I'm excited and terrified all at the same time. How fun! <laughs> so let's read the first two verses. God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Our Father, we pray that you would uh, open up our hearts to understand your word. We pray for our children and children's worship and ask that you would bless them, that you would bless them with fun, with enjoyment, with connection with the leader, but most of all, with faith in your Son. And would you do all this for Jesus' sake? Amen. So 2022, the, the theme uh, that uh, I've chosen is for preaching is following Jesus. We want to follow Jesus. And, and a part of the, the reason for that um, is, is really tied up in uh, the book of, of Hebrews when we, we recognize. And the, the first thing is that it's, it's a frequent command of Jesus, isn't it? I mean, how often does he meet someone and say, follow me? Sometimes with nothing more than that. Some, sometimes with more. But, uh, but he would continually say that, and that's a part. But, but the other part of it that, that impacted me and that, that led me to, to think about that and to think about the book of Hebrews is, is the idea of, of thinking of what it's like to be a covenant child. And that is a child that grows up in the church. And they're tremendous blessings. I mean, it's, it's just a, a great thing. I, I, w I wasn't given that blessing. Um, I, I became a Christian uh, when I was 18 and hadn't really been in a, a church hardly at all before that. Um, but, but it also has some difficulties with it. Because it's easy when you grow up in the church to just go with the flow, right? And so I, I go to church, so I'm a Christian. I go to a Presbyterian church, so I must be a Presbyterian. Although many of you will look around and say, not so with me. I may go to a Presbyterian. It doesn't make me a Presbyterian. That's true. Um, but, but, uh, but sometimes we can just kind of go along. And what happens is we end up just being a part of, of everything that is about the church, but, but we miss Jesus. And so we're, 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 we're missing something very, very, the, the, the most important thing that the faith continues to be the faith of our fathers, but it doesn't become our faith. And there has to be that point in which each individual follows Jesus, not just because of the, the tradition that they were in. Now, this has been the case for, for a long, long time, and so we would read even in the Old Covenant in, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, all of these individuals who had been uh, circumcised and they were a part of, of the church in, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses says this to them. He says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. And he pointed out that the, the external mark wasn't sufficient. The going through the motions within the, the church and, and being present at all of the different uh, ceremonies and rituals, that wasn't sufficient. That there had to be something, an internal connection with God. In essence, each person needs to follow Jesus individually. The book of Hebrews is a book that was written 
to people who grew up in the Old Testament church, Hebrews. They were descendants of Abraham. So they were, they were Jews um, who grew up within the Old Testament church. And they had all of the rituals and, and all of the elements and all of the scriptures of the Old Testament. And yet the author of Hebrews continues to invite them to follow Jesus. They were in a time of transition when this book was written. It was probably written somewhere between 66 and 70 A.D. We're pretty sure that it happened before the the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the the temple, which was in 70 A.D. But There's no mention along those lines, and so it's probably before that. But but it's a little bit later because we we see some references to Timothy. And so so we look at that and we, we try to gauge the time, and it was probably then. So it was... It was at this time of, of, of great transition. And think about what it was like. I, imagine what this would be like for an individual who grew up in the Old Covenant to suddenly have the Messiah that you've dreamt of has actually come. Now that would be an incredibly difficult thing to do because he came as a person and to suddenly turn and say that person, that man is God and I need to follow him, is, it takes an amazing amount of faith. And, and then everything is changing. All the, the rituals of, of their worship are, are, are beginning to change. They've, they've celebrated Passover all the time, and now Passover isn't happening, but, but we're having this, uh, this, this communion meal where we've got bread and, 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 a, and a cup, and we're, we're taking that, and, but the but Passover lamb is gone, and, and that's, that's been taken away. No longer do we have circumcision. We're not circumcising anymore. Now we've got baptism, which has taken its place, and, and it's... And it's uh, Many of us are really grateful. We really prefer baptism. That's a whole lot better way of handling this. But, but, but nonetheless, it, it still is a challenge in the life of an individual who's lived their entire life with these other rituals, and all of a sudden, it's changed. And then you add the fact that now, now we've got Gentiles showing up at church, too. They'll let anybody in these days, right? And, 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 and they're coming, and they're a part of it. And my whole life, I've, I've felt that the Gentiles are the enemy, and they're the danger, but now they're a part, and they're a brother and sister with me. How do I deal with this? How do I face this? What, is this? what does this do in my life and to my faith? And then add to that, now I'm finding that my Christian friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, who are following Him, are being persecuted by the Old Testament church that I've been a part of. What do I do with that? You know, they're getting kicked out of the synagogue. They're, they're, they're facing these, these hardships. And there was this guy, Saul, who's going around to throw him in jail. And so we have this, this persecution that's been taking place. It's very confusing at that time. And, and, I, I, and I think it's important, if we're going to really understand the message of the book of Hebrews, we've got to put ourselves in, in, in their place. We've got to walk in their shoes and understand just how difficult this was to understand something of the dilemma that they faced. I mean, they begin to ask the question, should I remain in the synagogue? Should I stay there? I mean, these are the people that I grew up with. These are my family. These are my friends. These are my neighbors, and they're all there, and they've always been there, and I've always gone there, and they're teaching the Old Testament Scriptures, which are the only Scriptures we have at this point, and, and this is happening, and yet they're also persecuting those who follow Jesus. What do I do in that type of a situation? Do I become a Christian? Which is to say, do I completely affiliate myself with this, what's viewed as a sect of Judaism and connect there? I believe that Jesus is the Christ, but I've continued on as an Old Testament believer. What do I do? What do I do with the Old Testament? Do I throw it out? 
And that's a very important question that they had, that they had to begin to, to, to recognize. There was the ride of rise of Judaizers, and we'll talk about that a little bit in, in a bit, and the Judaizers uh, who believed that you had to become a, a Jew before you could become a Christian. And then there's sometimes a, a, an over-response. They used to do that all the time, that they'd always over-respond to something that came up. Good thing we don't ever do that. And so, so some people would move toward, well, we want to get rid of the Old Testament altogether because, you know, isn't that what we do? And trying to, to work through this. And that's where the book of Hebrews begins, just with that issue. Because central to what they would say about the, the uh, message uh, and, and following Christ is, what about God's message? Can I trust it? Can I trust his message in the Old Testament? And so that's what I want us to look at. That's, I think, the introduction to this message is, uh, the message of Hebrews, is that you can trust God's message, which means you need to heed the Old Testament. Verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago in the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Notice he mentions the prophets. He starts out and he says that God spoke in the prophets. The prophets is a reference to the Old Testament scriptures. Even uh, Paul mentions that in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 2, where he talks about which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so prophets would be one of the ways in which he would refer to the Old Testament scriptures. He would refer to it that way. Um, to, the, to the Jew, there, there are three sections of the Old Testament scriptures. There's the, the law, which really are the first five books, the books of Moses. There's the writings, which are uh, the rest of the historical and the uh, uh, poetic books, and Daniel. And then there's the prophets, which are what we would think of as the minor and major prophets. And so that would be the three breakdowns. And you could talk about it in those ways, or you might refer to the whole Old Testament as the law, or you might refer to the whole Old Testament as the prophets, because they recognize that the, the prophets were overseeing all three elements of, of the Old Testament. I think here he's talking about the whole of the Old Testament that he's, he's calling uh, the prophets. Then he talks about the, the fathers, that it it's, was given to our fathers in the prophets. And the fathers are Old Testament believers. We see that in places like uh, in uh, uh, John the Baptist or Jesus would talk to the Jews and would say, don't say to me that you have Abraham for your father, because they'd want to say, That's, he's our father. And so that lineage was very important. Well, the author of Hebrews is, is speaking to that at this point and is, is pointing out that that, yes, that is the Old Testament believers. And the only scriptures that they had at this point was the Old Testament. The New Testament has not yet been compiled. It hasn't been completed yet. It's still in process, which gives you a little bit more of that, that sense of transition that they're going through. So how does he show us that we can heed the Old Testament? I think he does that by showing us that it is God's word. God after he spoke long ago and the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways. God, after he spoke. He affirms that the Old Testament is God's word. Therefore, we still heed God's word. It is the very word of God. That's what he spoke through the prophets. Now, there's a legitimate concern that they have to ask is, do we discard the Old Testament? And there may have been that pressure. Now, that pressure would be there, but the, the, the cultural pressure would be far greater to not do that. The cultural implications of that are, are massive, that uh, we live in an entire society that is, that is guided and directed and grounded in the Old Testament, in the, in the Word of God. And so I don't want to give that up. They, they would be aware of uh, Psalm 19, verse 7. 
The law of the Lord, which is speaking of the whole Old Testament together, is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And just showing that, that all of this is, is a reality, that the Bible is the very word of God. Many would have memorized Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Or verse 11. Your word I've treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is all still true. And the author to Hebrews is recognizing that and is affirming that. In the next 40 to 50 years after this book is written, there would be a rise of uh, a teacher, a, a pastor named Marcion. And what Marcion would do is want to throw out the whole Old Testament. Didn't want to have anything to do with the Old Testament. He viewed the God of the Old Testament as not the father of Jesus, but as, as the demiurge. And some of it is, is tied to the rejection of Judaism and, and wanting to get rid of that. And so his teachings will begin to rise, will lead many people astray. And the, the church will have to, to come out against that and point out that that's, that's just false. And will have to affirm what, what the scriptures are. And he, he would have a list of what he thought the, the scripture was, and it was none of the Old Testament, it was much of the New Testament. Interestingly, he threw out Hebrews, uh, partly because Hebrews so affirms that the Old Testament is the word of God. So as, as the author of Hebrews is, is working with uh, the, the people, he wants to affirm to them, that he's talking to these people who are in this intertestamental time. He's talking to these people who are transitioning from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And as he's talking to them, he begins by affirming that the Old Testament is the Word of God. And he shows them that it is there. He says they even spoke to the fathers in the prophets. To the fathers. And they honored their fathers. As I mentioned already, that the, the Jews would come out and say, we have Abraham for our father. Therefore, we're okay. Because of my relationship with him, everything's good. And that's a, that's a good thing. And they would, they would look at that and they would recognize and honor the Father. So as this author says that God spoke to the fathers, he's affirming the reality of, of, of this faith in the Old Testament, that we do indeed heed the Old Testament. But I think he also points us to, to consider the development of the Old Testament as well, where he talks about in many portions and in many ways. In many portions and in many ways. He's showing us something of the, the way that the, the, the message in the Old Testament, the message of the gospel, it, it came to us in, in a variety of ways. You think of just different prophets. Moses, who wrote the first five books of, of the Bible, and I think maybe, maybe one psalm, uh, is very, very different in the way that he writes, which is all historical narrative, right? From Isaiah who is like the prototypical, the, the classic prophet. And when you think of the prophets, Isaiah is, is the master of them all. And he wrote with, with great poetry and, and uh, would, would uh, uh, speak for God in, in a mighty way. But you look at the, the two uh, ways in which they present Scripture, and it's very different, right? And then throw in there David, who writes most of the Psalms, right? And that's an entirely different uh, methodology. And then Solomon, who, who brings in the Song of Solomon. And, and that's just different in much of Proverbs. And so you have all this variety, and God used this variety. It wasn't that he just sat down and he dictated, okay, here's what you do, and there's a single voice. But no, he used these, these different ways of bringing the Old Testament Scripture to us. And the author of, of Hebrews invites us to consider that and to, to figure out what that means. But it's also a progressive revelation. 
Kenneth Wiest, uh, a Greek scholar, has this to say. He says, the First Testament revelation was progressive. All could not be revealed at once, and because all could not be understood at once. Thus, the revelation was given in many parts. In addition to this, it was given in different modes. It was given in the form of law, prophecy, history, psalm, sign, type, parable. Expositor says that the people of Israel were like men listening to a clock striking the hour, always getting nearer the truth, but obliged to wait till the whole is heard. I think he just eloquently reminds us of, of the progressive element of the revelation of God's message, that he didn't tell Adam everything. He told Adam enough. So I want us to look at that flow for just a moment, and I'm going to walk us through that flow, primarily by looking at uh, the, the covenant of grace as it was revealed in progressive stages in the Old Testament, as God began to reveal it, as he dealt with different individuals and presented something of his promise, recognizing that, that all of the promises are, are present in the first pro proclamation of it, but they're not all seen until the conclusion. And so I just want us to, to see something of this flow and to understand this, this progress that, that we'll see. I'm going to refer to various uh, passages uh, where, where we see this so that you can jot this passage down. Um, if, if we had gone through every passage in the earlier service, you would be coming in in the middle of our, the sermon from the early service because it would just take way too much time. But if you jot those down and then you can read through them yourself and, and get a feel for, for what we're talking about as we talk about this, this flow. And the first is that, that God first spoke uh, the covenant of grace to Adam. Actually, he spoke it to Satan and then moved on to Adam, but he started out talking to uh, Satan to, to, to declare what his promise was. And what did he say? He said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And you will bruise him on the heel and he will bruise you on the head. This is that great first preaching of the gospel. This is that, that first covenant. And he speaks specifically to Adam in the, in the environment in which Adam was. Adam was in rebellion against God in alliance with Satan. And God says, I'm going to bring a, a division between that alliance. I'm going to break it up. There's going to be enmity. But you notice he doesn't just say enmity between you and, and uh, the woman, right? He doesn't tell Satan that it's just between him and the woman, but your seed and her seed. So that what he reveals to us is the first promise is that God is going to rescue his people and their children from Satan. That's a tremendous promise that we begin to see. He begins to expand this promise as he moves in to talk with Noah. And we know that with Noah, that the, the world, uh, the, the great condemnation, that every thought and intention of their heart was only wicked all the time, was the place, and God brings the flood. But he rescues Noah and his children because of Noah's faith. And what does God promise Noah? He promises that he's going to preserve his people and their children. So not only is he going to rescue them, he revealed that to Adam, but he didn't tell Adam about the preservation per se. It was, it was implicit, but it wasn't specifically said. With Noah, it's explicitly stated. Is he going to now not rescue them, but just preserve them? No. The previous promise continues, but he adds, and it's like a flower that begins to bloom. And now we have another petal that we can see. And we see, oh, he's going to rescue his people and their children, and he's going to preserve his people and their children. And he goes to Abraham. And the key element of the covenant with Abraham is, is circumcision. 
And what was the point of circumcision? The point of circumcision was to set his people apart. And so he tells Abraham, his promise is, I'm going to set my people and their children apart to me. That setting apart becomes a central part. He's going to rescue them, he's going to preserve them, and he's going to set them apart. His people and their children is what God has said. The next element that we see is in Moses. And Moses, the key part that we see in Moses is the law, right? When we think about Moses, we think about the Ten Commandments. We think about the, the, the three laws, the, the ceremonial, the civil, and, and the uh, moral law. And they're all given to Moses. And, and so what do we see in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 and 6, in which he tells uh, Moses that if you obey my covenant, you will be my people. And he promises them, that not only is he going to rescue them, not only is he going to preserve them, not only is he going to set them apart, but he's going to guide his people and their children through his good law. And it's important. He always presented his law as a good thing. It was not a bad thing. It was never intended to be a way in which they could save themselves. It was always a way that would point them to a Savior. But he promises that he's going to guide them through his good law. The next revelation is his relationship with Daniel, or David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And what does he say to David? His promise there really is, is of the coming king. And so what he's telling is not only is he going to rescue his people from Satan, his people and their children, not only is he going to preserve his people and their children, not only is he going to set his people and their children apart, not only is he going to guide his people and their children through his good law, he is also going to rule his people and their children through his good king the king that he will establish, that David is a type of. And then we move to the new covenant. And the new covenant says that he's going to write his law upon our hearts. So the law is not going to be abolished with the new covenant. It's going to continue. The promise is going to continue. Not, he doesn't throw out what he told Abraham, I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. No, he continues that. And so in the new covenant, we see that he's going to save his people and their children through his good son that he's going to send. And this is the flow of the Old Testament, that this is the, the, the picture that the Jews would have. This is God speaking in many portions and in many ways. That he's giving us this progression. Do you see something of that, that, that blossoming bud that starts out in, in, in very small form? You see all of the petals are there, but you can't see them when he begins. But by the time we get to the new covenant, we get to see this flower in all of its glory as God is revealing to us what he's going to do. What is his promise? What is that Old Testament message that we can heed? This is it. Think of the changes that they begin to experience now as they, they are entering into that new covenant promised through Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31. First off, the, the first change that's going to be very clear is it expands to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are being brought in. And to the Jews who look at the Old Testament, they begin to recognize that Abraham was told that he would be a blessing to all the nations of the world. He wasn't going to be just for himself, right? As he looks back at, at, at the same promises to Adam and to uh, uh, Noah even before, we begin to see, of course, that was God's intention. And in the prophets, he said the same thing, that it was going to be to all the world. But they see that it begins to expand to all the Gentiles. They begin to see that the sacraments now are sacraments that do not have blood. Whereas in the Old Testament, the sacrament of Passover, the blood was central. The, the, the blood is taken away when we begin to look here because the blood of Christ has been shed and the blood of circumcision has been taken away and replaced with the water that washes us. 
And so this change has been taking place. We begin to see the sacrificial system has been done away with. No longer do they have to hold an animal and take its life and to consider that significance as the blood even touches them and as they seek to offer it unto God. The blood of the sacrifice is taken away and yet the content remains. The content, the central point made to Adam is I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you has continued through the entire Old Testament message and it carries into the new covenant and God continues to give us that promise and to invite us to trust it. So we can heed the Old Testament. That's the first place that the author of Hebrews begins. You can trust the Old Testament. You can heed its message. And verse 2, he says, and you can follow Jesus. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. We talk about revelation, um, and we talk about it in a couple different ways. First way we talk about it is general revelation. General revelation is the idea that, that we see God in the creation. We see God in, in the, the ordering of the world so that the sun comes up each morning and the sun sets each, each, each evening. We see the, the, the orderliness and the, the care of God in that. We see the beauty of God as we look at the field covered with wildflowers, right? We see the majesty of God as we see the magnificent mountains and we're in awe at these massive uh, uh, piles of rock and, and how immovable they are and we're reminded something of God. We, we see something of the wisdom and the vastness and the infinity of God as we, we look up into the heavens and we see the stars that are billions of miles away and yet we can see them and they're placed in order and we're able to, to tell time and seasons by them. We're able to navigate according to their placement and they become this incredible tool to us and we see something of God in those. We see see him in the way that he works even among the animal kingdom we see god's existence but we do not know how to be saved by looking at creation for that we need special revelation which is the word of god in the special revelation of god we learn how we may be saved but we need to be careful as we talk about that distinction that we leave out incarnational revelation which is exactly what verse 2 is talking about he says that he spoke to us in his son. John 1.1 1, 1 speaks of that. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the word of God. Why would he choose word except to show to us that God is revealing something of himself in the Lord Jesus Christ? And this is the highest of all the revelations of God. That he shows us in God himself becoming man. So as, as he turns the attention from you, you heed the Old Testament to the way that God has spoken to us in his son, he begins to emphasize the advantages of the new covenant. This is something that the author of Hebrews will do throughout this entire book, is he will, he will show us the Old Testament is true and it is great, and the new is more and better. And he continually encourages us to make that step because these people have grown up in the Old Testament church and he's inviting them to step into the new covenant and to walk in that new covenant and to live in that new covenant. And so he continues to emphasize that so that he even begins by saying, in these last days, we've got a transition. 
We're not in the days of our fathers anymore. We are not in the old covenant anymore. We are now in the new covenant. It is in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son. Not in a prophet who is a sinful man like you and I, but in His Son who is without sin. Which reminds us of the the moment at the transfiguration when Jesus uh, is there alone with uh, John and James and Peter. And a voice from heaven comes down in Mark chapter 9, verse 7. And he says that a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And that's really what the author of Hebrews is telling us, right? Now He's spoken to us in His Son. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. You can follow Him. For God speaks to us. He says, in these last days, He has spoken to us. He's spoken to us. It's interesting, in in the Old Testament, we have uh, one instance which is pretty powerful. Uh, Years ago, the the first time I taught a series, or preached a series, was through the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments begin uh, with the uh, words, Then the Lord God spoke these words, saying. Okay? And so I began to study that and to see what that means. And the first thing that I discovered is that Cecil B. DeMille was wrong. Shocking. Someone almost left the earlier service when I mentioned that. But forgive me. Let me explain. We've all seen the Ten Commandments, right? I, I, I just assume. So there's no, no uh, warning, spoiler alert. Um, in the Ten Commandments in the movie, Moses goes up on the mountain all by himself, just him and God, and God gives Moses alone in a private meeting the Ten Commandments, right? And we've assumed that Cecil B. DeMille was telling us the truth. Then we begin to look at the scripture, we begin to see something very, very different. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, uh, Moses is about to show that, remind them of the Ten Commandments, and he says this, he says, The Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire. While I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up on the mountain. And so we see even in chapter 3 that he, he, he talks about this even more fully and just showing that what happened actually when the Ten Commandments were given was God spoke to them. And all the people heard the very voice of God. And then they were terrified. And you can see this in in Exodus chapter 20. And they said, let God not speak to us anymore. Moses, go up and you'd get this. Because they were freaked out because they'd heard the voice of God. But the Ten Commandments they'd heard from God, which makes the golden calf that much more heinous a crime, doesn't it? God in His own voice had said, don't do that. And they said, oh, hey, I've got an idea. Let's go do that. And off they run to do that. And it just reminds us of our own heart, right? But that's like the only time in the Old Testament, every other time that God is speaking to His people, He sends the prophet, right? And the prophet would speak. But He's spoken to us in His Son. There's no mediator between the Son and us. The Son is the mediator between us and God the Father. But the Son who is fully God has spoken to us. And some of you may be saying, well, I haven't heard his word. I I haven't heard his voice, right? And I would challenge that. 
Really? Has he invaded your life? Has he brought you to that point in which outside of you is this proposition? Jesus died for your sins, and you see it. There it is. Jesus died for my sins. It's out there. And somehow I come to understand that that means to me. And I begin to see he died for my sins. And so I reach out and I grab that proposition and I draw it into my heart and I begin to live my life based on that truth. I then believe it. You see, that's the Spirit of God who's been sent by the Lord Jesus Christ, who's come into your heart, awakened you, made you alive, granted you faith, and prompted you to act in that faith and to receive it and to live according to it. That has been you hearing the voice of Jesus. He has spoken to you. He has invaded your life. He has moved in this way, for He speaks to us today. Will you believe that proposition? Maybe today's the day. Maybe you see it outside you right now. And you've, you've seen it there. But maybe all of a sudden you're saying, oh, but wait a minute. That really demands that I do something with this proposition. That demands that I have to accept it and believe it, meaning live it out. Will you do that this day? And put your trust in the fact that Jesus has died for your sins. And then recognizing that he speaks to us, and we have something else. We have his written word. The Jews, at the time of the author of Hebrews, they didn't have, everybody didn't have their own scroll. Right? We do. And so we should listen. We should read the scripture. Read it as though it's God's word. Read it not like a novel, not like an owner's manual. Read it as though it is God's revelation of himself to you. Meditate on it. Take time to think about what does this then mean? What are the implications of this upon me and my life in the environment in which I now live? Apply it to your life. Ask, how do I live this out? How do I put this into practice? If this is what God has said and it is, how do I live it? And then be still. Sometimes we just need to be still after asking God, guide me. And then just shh. And he will guide us. He may bring to memory the word of God or wise counsel that you've received. So God does speak to us. And let's take time. What the author then does is he describes Jesus to us. So let's consider the Son. Let's consider Jesus for just a, a few moments. I think the first thing that he tells us about him is that he owns everything. He says, in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. He's the heir, which is, is to say he is the owner. Because if he's just the heir and he has to wait for, for God the Father to die, that's meaningless, right? Obviously, God the Father can't die, so that's not going to happen. If God the Father died, he and the Son are one, so they both, and they, so it, just, it just wouldn't work. Um, but he's the heir of all things, which means he owns all things. He owns it all. And to think about that, there was uh, when I first got into the ministry, there was a, a pastor uh, in the, the Phoenix area, and uh, Pat and Jan may remember Garrett DeYoung. 
pastor, I think he was in Scottsdale, and uh, I, uh, he, was, he was retiring about the time I started my ministry. He'd been in the ministry a lot longer than I'd been alive, and uh, just the thing I remember uh, about Pastor Young was he had such a heart for evangelism, and there are a couple of things that he would do. One of the things he did, this is back in the uh, old days when uh, you had to pay bills by carving out a check on a piece of stone, but do you remember paying bills where you had to put it in an envelope and mail it, right? Some, do you know what checks are most? Be sure. Okay. We had to do that. So he'd always take his bulletin and would put a bulletin in to the, the package that he was mailing, thinking it's possible the person who opens it up might never have heard of Jesus, and maybe by opening the bulletin, maybe God will show them the gospel and they may come to him. Maybe. And you know what? We may look at that and say, oh, it's sowing wild oats. Well, I'd like the wild oats better than the no oats we sow, so, right? <laughs> I, I appreciate his heart. And he would say he would have people come in and he would show them around Scottsdale. And Scottsdale has all kinds of beautiful uh, buildings. And he'd, he'd drive by and he'd tell them, see that house there? That's my father's house. Then he'd drive by South Mountain say, it's my father's mountain. And people by that time, folks probably got it figured out what he's trying to say. And what he's just trying to show is God owns all this. And I just like that Garrett believed that. I say it, but I'm not sure I always believe that. If I believe it, it isn't going to affect me in a number of ways. One of the ways it may affect me is, is I think I'm going to be a good steward of this world, aren't I? I mean, there comes a point when, when kids begin to recognize there's a distinction between things that are theirs and things that are their parents. And they, they, they're careful with the things that their parents own, right? Sometimes because, you know, they know they get in real trouble if they mess that up. But they want to protect their parents' stuff. Well, I kind of want to protect my father's stuff. It's, it's not my world to trash any way I want. It's his world for me to take care of. And so I should be a good steward of this world in which he's put me. But I should also, as I live my life in this world, shouldn't I, like, worship him? Because it's his. And look at it. It's so good. And I see something of him, and I just want to give myself over to him as being a great and a kind God, because he owns all things. Not only does he own all things, he created the world, through whom also he made the world. Now the word world is the, the Greek word ion. Uh, it's not cosmos. I, I usually talk about this when I think of uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the word world there is ion as well, which we would say eon. Not cosmos, like cosmology, but eon, like an age, a time. And to begin to think about the fact that he's created the age in which we all live. He created the age in which Jesus lived. Think about the age in which even the author of Hebrews and the people he's writing to, God created your age, the age in which you live. It was an age in which the church was oppressed by the Roman authorities, right? It was an age in which there was very little faith so that Jesus would even say to his disciples, O ye of little faith, right? He recognized that there was so little faith that he had to say, I've not seen in any of Israel, the faith that he saw in the centurion, right? In this Roman, he saw real faith. And that was the age in which um, Jesus was living. 
In our age, he's also made this age. In the age in which Jesus lived, he made the age and sent Jesus into it for the purpose of bringing redemption in the midst of that age, right? Is anybody else discouraged sometimes as we look at our age? It's just heartbreaking sometimes. Uh, especially you hold your, your little grandchild and you think of the rise of immorality around us. And it's frightening. It's really disheartening when we think of the fact that uh, faith is, is so diminishing in our world. And not just, not just that, that people don't believe in the Bible, but they reject God outright. And I see this rise and it becomes very discouraging and, and can be a, a, a fearful thing. I look around at the wars and the violence that's around us, the violence in our own land, and I think of the wars, and I, I see people talking about the, the fear of World War III and, and uh, having studied at least a little bit of the beginning of World War I and World War II, and I see similarities, and it becomes a, a frightening thing. But you know, he made this age too, didn't he? And if we were to look at God and say, but God, it's such a horrible age in which we live, and he may say, yes, that's why I put you in it. Because you're to be my instrument for redemption in the midst of that horrible age. It doesn't control you. It's controlled by God. Jesus has made it. He knows our age. And so we can have hope even in the midst of this age. I've thought this for, for a long time as I've thought about the book of Hebrews. And uh, recently in, in reading some commentaries, I was kind of encouraged that there are some scholars who, who agree with that, that uh, it, it really seems to me to be a sermon. You know, I, I've always read the book of Hebrews and it, it's felt like it was a sermon. And there's, there's exegesis of passages and there's explanation and there's, there's application. It just really seems as though it is this sermon. Now, I don't know that for sure, but... But it seems to me that it was a sermon that was written and it was mailed to some friends of the individual who preached it. So, so it comes in a letter form, but, but it's very different from any of the, the epistles in the New Testament. And, and so it just kind of stands out. And, and I think, okay, so it's, it's this, if it's this sermon, then he's addressing Jew, Jewish Christians who are in this transition period. And what he's doing is he's saying to these Jewish Christians... You can follow Jesus. He is the Christ. He's inviting them to fully come into the new covenant. And in fully coming into the new covenant to, to experience all of, all of those blessings which are a part of that. And so he begins his address, his introduction to the sermon, if you will, by affirming that you can trust God's message. You can trust God's message. You can trust God's message by heeding the Old Testament, and you can trust God's message by following Jesus. And so that's the invitation to us to trust God's message. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks. Thanks for this time that we can spend in your word. Thanks for the message that you gave to the Hebrews. Father, I believe in many ways this message is so relevant to us today and I pray that you'll help us to hear it and to begin by trusting your message both in the Old Testament and in the New through your Son. 
Will you do this in Jesus' name? Amen.